You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, Michael? I'm great. I was thinking the other day, if you could travel back in time to give your mm-hmm. first year self, not your first like birthday self, because I feel like he wouldn't do much <laughs> listening, being a toddler and all. Yeah. Talk to your first year teacher self, you know? Okay. What advice would you give? I'm a little scared. I feel like I'd maybe like pray, play a prank on myself or something. Like, I feel like I'd, like, sabotage myself. I've been watching too much Office lately, so all I see is, like, you know, pranks on Dwight Schrute. And so you'd feel like you'd be the gym to your Dwight. Mm-hmm. I'd give myself bad advice, like, um, just let the students do what they want. The course just figures itself out, usually. Just figures itself out. That's how you do it. Smile, sometimes. What I think really helps teachers improve is not just that they, they gain experience, but they really reflect on that experience over time, really intentionally. And I'd like to think I've learned a thing or two. I don't know. What about you? Do you feel like you have you could give a lot of wisdom to your former self? That's a really weird question, just because I feel like when you're a first year teacher, like you're like bright eyed and you're like, oh, my God, I can do this. This is going to be great. I was really idealistic. I had so many. uh, It's not that I've been tempered down, but I feel like that I've been a bit more focused. And so maybe that's it. Like you're going to be more focused. It's going to be okay. I promise. Let's investigate this a little more. Fortunately, we have an incredible panel today of educators who are going to help us think a little bit about what kind of advice we can have. And so let's first start by welcoming in our members of our panel. So let's start with Chris Hitchcock. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your background in education, Chris? Sure. I did my undergraduate teaching preparation at Indiana University, and I graduated in the mid-1990s, so old school. and I started teaching in a school where I did my student teaching, which was kind of a good experience in some ways. And I've taught in four different states and in face-to-face and online. So I have kind of a variety of experiences. Excellent. All right. And we also have Destiny Warrior. Destiny, tell us a little about your background. Um, my degree is in elementary education. Graduated in 2003 from Oklahoma State. Um, I did my student teaching in third grade and immediately went to middle school. So um, I I learned a lot through that experience. So elementary, middle level. Okay. Now, Dan, this is an uber special podcast because not only do we have these two juggernauts on board, there's something else going on. Yeah. We have an entire class joining us today, which we think (laughs) is revolutionary. And so we're going to let Betsy Barrow introduce herself and talk a little bit about who's joining us. Hi, um, I'm Betsy Barrow. I'm a doctoral candidate at UNC Chapel Hill. My background is in social studies education. Uh, I am a non-traditional teacher. I went through both my undergraduate and my master's in my subject area and um, did not get a teaching degree and went and uh, taught uh, in a private school and then realized that I needed to, to learn a little bit more about this and, and also wanted to make myself a better teacher. So I enrolled in my program. Um, I am now a certified teacher and um, have a certification in curriculum and instruction as well. So can you tell us a little bit about your class that's joining us today, um, what their majors are, what the kind of the background is and, and where they're at in their studies? 
Yeah, sure. So this is a master's of arts in teaching class, and this is their second methods course, um, and it's interdisciplinary. So we have seven social studies students, uh, two math and three English language arts. I actually taught English for one year, uh, which was great. I taught English and history. So I was kind of cross-curricular there. I just wanted to have some connection between the, the group of us. Having said that, we have almost no wisdom to offer the math people. Sorry. <laughs> I should also mention that um, I did teach, I taught high school for nine years. I taught um, AP and U.S. world history for nine years. So. I, love, I love world history. Uh, I've never taught the AP, but I just love it in general. He often gets very excited on our podcast whenever he finds an opportunity to throw in like enlightenment philosophers into the discussion. In the French Revolution. I get very excited. Yeah, it's it's happened on numerous episodes. So what we're going to do today is we're here to answer your questions. And so you guys have come up with a list of questions that we're going to try to answer to our best of our ability about teaching. So we can go ahead and get started with question one. Hey, how's it going? My name's Carter. I'm hoping to teach high school social studies, specifically U.S. history is my favorite. Um, I kind of decided I want to be a teacher because uh, I like working with younger people and I kind of like the, the cyclical pattern of the job, um, if that makes sense. And my, uh, my first question is, how do you protect your free time as a teacher? Uh, how do you not let school essentially take over your life? Yeah, I would speak to that um, if it's okay. I would, I would say just having priorities first off going into it. Um, and then also knowing that as a new teacher, it's going to take you some more time. I know when I first started, I would see teachers who could walk out at 3 o'clock and be like, they don't care about the kids. Well, no, they care about kids, but they've developed routines that I didn't have yet. Um, something that's really helpful for me is just to have a schedule. So Monday was the day I did my lesson planning. Tuesday was the day I graded papers. Wednesday was the day I entered grades. You know, So scheduling things, but then also saying, this is my time. This is a block of time that's for me, you know, and then understanding that it is important. Traditionally in education, we haven't been really good at self-care. And so prioritizing your time and saying, this is important and I'm going to protect it just like I protect anything else for myself so that I'm really great for my students. Sometimes I still actually struggle trying to find a way to protect my free time. It's, it can be tough. And sometimes you need to set a deadline. Like I got to go home at, at five. Like that's it. That's a drop dead deadline or six or, or, or sometimes if it's going to be a more intensive thing, you know that you have to leave before you go to bed. Other things to, to do, try to find something you enjoy, find a hobby. For me, I started taking improv classes. And so that was kind of like my thing. So Wednesdays I went to go take an improv class and eventually like it was kind of neat because that started to, to bleed into my, into my class. Because you never really know when inspiration is going to strike. So it's kind of interesting when like things that you enjoy personally start to like, you know, come into your class, which is kind of neat, even though you're doing something like improv, um, whatever you choose to do, who knows, like that somehow could be a, a nice teachable moment in your class. And, and don't worry, the grading is going to wait for you. And Michael, just to point out, his theater work actually overlaps a lot with his teaching, right? Because you, your, your theater group you were with like had a history focused <laughs> yeah. actual what was the name of it again it's an improvised people's history uh, so, in which we create a history textbook <laughs> it's really good we were at a conference one year and they put on a performance and it was awesome so i think it's really cool to have overlapping interests i'll say one thing to what destiny said is also identify the things you want to do like i was a social studies teacher and i could read about 
government, Supreme Court cases, you know, U.S. history all day long. And so that was always easy for me, and I always wanted to do it. What was important was to put on my schedule when I was going to grade. Because guess what? That's the thing I didn't want to do. And it's something that I had to do to give my students the feedback they needed. So when you prioritize, I think it's really important to think about the things you care about. Hi, I'm James. I'm training to be a high school English teacher. Uh, I discovered I wanted to work with kids and be a teacher when I started doing volunteer literacy tutoring. And uh, since then, I've enjoyed every kind of teaching opportunity I've had. Um, my question was, what suggestions do you have for easing the transition to full-time teaching uh, starting next year? I had to do a lot of thinking for this question because it's been a long time since I haven't been teaching. And I feel like my sleep schedule has adjusted so much that I get up regardless at 5.30 in the morning every single day. Student teaching, I felt, was really helpful because you are getting into that. You I mean, you're getting into the routine right there, and so that does kind of help you. You can no longer take that afternoon nap after sieve. But for me, the, the student teaching and the practicum before kind of getting in, in, that, in that frame. Also, for like a week before, I used to drive the, the route. Like when I was first starting my job, I would get up at you know my time. I would uh, drive the route in the morning just to see what it would be like, and that also kind of helped me out. I don't recommend doing that, you know, in your fifth, sixth, seventh year. That's kind of how I roll in my car. <laughs> so one of the things for me that I did was, um, or my suggestions is finding your community, whether it's your um, assigned mentor at your school or your informal mentor. For me, it was um, my carpool. Uh, when I carpooled to school and had someone to talk to, um, that kind of eased into uh, what the expectations were. Um, but a lot of what you guys said for the in the first question, which is um, setting a routine and when you're going to do certain things, really helped me in, in my um, first year of teaching. And if you don't have a community, you know, one thing we have available now today is online communities um, for you social studies people. We have SS chats on Monday on Twitter um, from 7 to 8 o'clock Eastern time. And I actually, that's where Michael and I met, is we were Twitter chatting and we had a lot of common interests and eventually it just turned into projects. And so we've been working on stuff and now we have a podcast together. And so there are a lot of spaces. If you're not getting everything you need from your school, sometimes you can find some of those connections online. Hey, my name's Stephanie and I hope to teach in the community where we are. I live here and I wanna be in the community where my children go to school. Um, I would like to teach high school social studies focused on civics. And the reason I went into teaching is this is my third career, but um, I saw the major impact that small mo moments of intuitive and thoughtful teaching can make. Um, I saw that impact greatly in my children's lives. And so when thinking about wanting to go back, that's what I wanted to do. My question for you was on priorities. You've already addressed sort of the macro priorities, looking at balancing work and home. So there's a lot of shades of things that happen during the day. There's do you, how many lunches do you give up? Do you spend some time getting to know your coworkers or do you do a little bit more lesson plan? So there's, there's that secondary layer of prioritizing. Maybe you could address that. Absolutely. For me, I think it's really about knowing who you are. I need time. So for me, rarely will I work through lunch. Like that's the time for me to take a break. I need that to go um, back into the classroom and to be good for students. I need to step away from work for a little bit. I think just knowing that relationships in your building are important, your colleagues are important, so you have to give some attention to that. So you have to get out of your room. You know, for me, what I would do my first year teaching, you know, everyone says avoid the teacher's lounge, it's negative. 
not always, sometimes it is. But I still walked in there once a week, <laughs> you know, to get to know people. Then also taking time um, just to replenish yourself and, and knowing your needs, I think is incredibly important. But then also knowing that not everything is a priority. I think the difference between when I first started teaching in 2003 and what I see with my college students now um, is that it seems like the culture of education that everything is a priority and it simply isn't. So for me, um, that first year of teaching, I was like, if I can be great instruction, that's where I'm going to put my focus. Yes, you're probably going to have to intercom me every day about eligibility. Can you send that in? And I would tell my principal, you know, I'm going to be a great teacher this year. I'm going to really focus on that. These daily routines, I'm going to pick up. And I cut myself some slack um, just knowing that I wasn't going to have this thing perfected in the first year. So um, I think just giving yourself some grace for some of those things as well, if that helps. And Stephanie, you know, to, when I actually was looking at this question, I was actually thinking of prioritizing as a teacher, like you're teaching. So hopefully it's okay I speak to that a little bit. Because one of the first things I think that happens when you get into a classroom is you are given this like standards or curriculum to cover and it's really easy to get sucked into covering content. What advice I'd give in, in thinking about how you want to prioritize what you're doing in your classroom is try to make sure in addition to focusing on like whatever content you have to cover, don't forget to think about where your students are at. It's so easy to not spend time listening to them, to hearing their thoughts. And a lot of teachers just spend so much time talking in the classroom and not near enough time listening. And I've been looking a lot at, at watching teacher videos of teachers who are really good at a listening student thinking in their classroom. And what's amazing about them is how patient they are and how they'll, they'll let a kid just work all the way through their explanation of whatever it is. You know, if you're looking at primary documents about World War II, the kid will sit there and explain and they'll be off base on parts of it. But instead of trying to fix the mistake, the teacher will think, listen closely to understand where the kid's coming from, and then turn that question to other students in the class. And so they build this collective knowledge and you're actually seeing their thinking. And so the biggest thing I, I would say for prioritizing in your teaching is to really think about how you're going to understand what your students are thinking and just get to know them and who they are. Sometimes less is more. Mm-hmm. That's like a bumper sticker. <laughs> Hi, I'm Johnsey. I would really love to teach high school civics and I got into teaching really because I just know that some of the biggest influences in my life are some of my teachers and coaches, and I want to be able to do that for other kids. But um, my question was, what like what would you say about coaching your first year? Is that a no-no? Is that a maybe? Like, what do you think? When I entered into the profession back in the mid-90s, it was almost a requirement. If you actually wanted to get a job, you needed to be willing to do some type of extracurricular activity, um, supervision. Uh, whether that was, you know, model UN or student government, but a lot of it was coaching. And I had done track and cross country and all through school. Um, and so I actually picked up a coaching endorsement when I was doing my undergrad because I knew that's something that I wanted to do. And it was kind of amazing that I got called for interviews to coach cheerleading, volleyball, and basketball of which I knew nothing aside from watching it on television. And I honestly was concerned about whether I would be able to impart any kind of knowledge or if they basically just wanted somebody there to make sure nobody got hurt, which made me not want to do the cheerleading job because of all the flipping and everything. Um, so I graciously said straight up in the interview, I really don't think this is something that would be good for me to do. Um, 
just for your insurance purposes alone. But I waited and did not take a job with a coaching position that I felt would create more stress for me just to get the job. So I think that's important to know what you're okay with. And I will tell you that that resulted in me getting my first teaching job, thankfully at the school where I did my student teaching, which made things a little easier until literally like a week before school started. But that was a cross-country coaching job with a co-coach, which was such a help. He was also a first-year teacher, so we shared that burden with a sport that's at the beginning of the year. And then I volunteer assistant coached for track, which helped lead to a head coaching job the next year. But at least I wasn't totally on the hook for everything. (laughs) So I would say know yourself, know what you're comfortable with, and don't feel like you have to coach something just because that's what's going to get you the job, because you're probably going to set yourself up for a lot of uncomfortableness. One of the good things about coaching or being involved in extracurricular is that you're becoming a part of the school community. And that's a huge piece that the teachers need to do, especially new teachers. You need to establish yourself you're not just that person, you know, there for those 43 minutes, that you're, you know, a live, real person with interest and you're interested in the students and more than just their academics. And yeah, you're being, yeah, part of the team. Piggybacking on what Christine said, like, if you could just go in as an assistant coach, I'd be happy to coach. Can I be an assistant? Um, I've been coaching cross country and track and tennis, but going in as an assistant to learn so that you learn how the school culture works and, they, and you can stay out of trouble, you know, just knowing all of the rules and regs of athletics. It's, it's a lot, you know? And so if you can go in as an assistant, I think it's a lot easier on a first-year teacher. I'm Hayes. Um, I got into teaching after tutoring student athletes during undergrad. I went ahead into high school civics and econ or American history. I do have one question. During your lectures and presentations, what do you suggest doing with your hands? <laughs> this is the best question. Sometimes I feel like I'm a magician because I'm constantly doing wah. Um, because, yeah, I'm actually very active with my hands. I, sometimes I carry around props. For a while, I was carrying around a fishing rod, a fake fishing rod that I would fish for answers. It was just because I have a lot of nervous energy and, and, and that was what was helping me. Sometimes if, if I am like I'll, I'll have a cup of coffee like you probably see that I have a cup right here. Uh, that's just kind of like to tame me because when I don't, I, I'm kind of going everywhere. Sometimes you can also like, I don't know, carry around notes. So if you're, you're delivering a lecture, uh, you can have notes which can, you know, ground you. And then you can use your hand almost as a prop and you're blah, blah, blah. That's me using my hand as a prop. I don't know. Today I, I, have, an, I have an iPad around because I have like images on my, I have a television in my classroom instead of a, a projector. And so I have my iPad to, to kind of flip through images. And so that's what I do today. In looking at this question, I actually watched like a video on like what you do with your hands. I was really curious and there's all kinds of great stuff you can find on YouTube about, like I actually read like you keep a zone in front of you. When you really want students to listen, don't move all over. And when you're like trying to give instructions or directions, it's good for you to be in a, one spot so that they can focus on you clearly. But I'll also argue that it's, even though this is maybe one of my favorite questions because it's a really fun one, it's also maybe the wrong question in a sense that I think this question makes me think that we're thinking of the role of teachers as you know these sages on the stage who are having to put on a performance for our students. And you're gonna spend so much time in the classroom with your students that I think shouldn't feel like you're always on a stage. This is where I disagree with you, Dan. I think, I think sometimes you are, you are putting on a, a bit of a performance. And I feel like knowing the space that you have, knowing the content. So if you're talking about something like, something like, you know, kind of deep, 
like taking up less space and having like less movement, it can almost like really like entrance people in. Um, and then, you know, moving around can do certain things really depending on what you're talking about. If you're talking about like the long March, you might walk around a bit more. I feel like there's, there's ways that you can play around with the content with what you're doing. And this is, maybe this is like the improv that I'm, I'm like, cause this is the type of thing that I, I do think about sometimes. And you're right that it shouldn't be all the time. If you're giving, you know, the best performance of your life, uh, five days a week, 43 minutes a day, um, that's probably an issue because then while it's a great performance, what are the students doing? But I feel like for those times when you are uh, lecturing, um, you know, you can put on a, put on a performance. Do it. Try it. It's Carter again. Uh, my question was, uh, how far ahead of time do you typically lesson plan for? When I first started, I would try to plan out units. And when I say that I would plan out units, I wouldn't have every single lesson done, but I would know where I was trying to go. The, I knew the destination, how I got there, sometimes it meandered, don't get me wrong. But this way I had a goal as to where I was going. And so now it was just kind of fitting in how I got there. So at first I was just planning unit by unit. Um, and then during that time I would kind of go lesson and I would look at, you know, what type of skills that I want to do for this particular unit and, and how I can, you know, work that in. But initially it was just unit by unit. And then I feel like as you develop your, you know, your units, you know, you look back at them at the quarter, you look at, you know, what went well, what worked. Um, you can revise them later on. And then a few years into it, you can really start to look at a program of studies that you've created from start to finish because you've had that looking at the destination, looking at the skills that you want to you want to get out of them and how you can kind of scaffold that over the year. I was just going to say I had the uh, fortune of being when I started, I was in a state that did not have end of course exams um, or a significant state assessment. So I didn't really I, I didn't have to be on as rigid a pacing schedule as I did when I moved to New York State where there were end of course exams like the regents exams. Um, but I knew that I wanted to get through. I didn't want to be, you know, the teacher that only made it to World War II in world history, you know, at the end of the year. Um, I wanted to get farther than that. So I was more interested in kind of setting up a pacing guide for myself and then building the units and then the lessons within that. And I, to be perfectly honest, the first year teaching, I mean, you I struggled. I don't want to say you because I'm sure lots of people do this better than me. I struggled to stay a few days ahead of the kids um, just because I didn't know the material that well. I mean, you can take all the classes that you want in your content area, but teaching it is a whole different animal in figuring out the best ways to create learning experiences for the students. So they're really getting a chance to work with the material besides you just telling them a lot of stuff. You know, it just, you know, you kind of have to build into that. But yeah, when you're working in a state where there's like these rigid end of course exams, like the regents in New York, or honest to goodness, I'm not making this up if anybody's from Virginia, you know, they have the SOLs, the standards of learning assessments. Seriously, <laughs> I moved there and I said, what? Um, so anyway, that kind of really rearranges your that forces you to plan in a different way, I think. And with that said, you're not going to know everything. There are questions your students are going to ask that you don't know. I mean, you know, you prepare as best you can. You try to learn around the material so you know a little bit more than the students. But feel free to say, you know what, I don't know. That's a really good question. Sometimes I, I do that even today. If like it's, you know, it's a really, I just have no idea. So I'm like, you know what, I don't know. Do you want to find that out for us? Or sometimes I'll kind of puzzle my way through it. And I'll be like, well, well, that's interesting because that makes me think about this. 
And sometimes I'll back into an answer, but I'm showing my thinking and then I have them check to see how correct my answer is. But I like the fact that there I am actually showing them my thinking, which I don't feel like we often do as teachers, you know? Um, so it's okay to say, I don't know. In fact, those are probably the most freeing words as a teacher uh, that you can say. Um, I'm Sam, and I want to teach high school social studies, probably U.S. or world history. And I want to teach because, like some of the others, I had a teacher, I had multiple teachers, actually, who influenced my life, and I want to pay it forward. Um, my question is, how much time do you spend looking for the outside resources provided per unit? I was just going to say that I don't remember. <laughs> um, I, I usually probably spent my first years um, a couple of hours, but one of the best pieces of advice that I received was a good teacher is a thief. And you look for other resources that are out there that you can use and modify for your own lessons. So I joined listservs. I taught the advanced placement classes and they have listservs and you get great ideas from them. Or if you were really stuck, you could pose a question to the listserv and they would provide answers for you. I've recently been finding a lot of things on Twitter and then actually found this podcast through through Twitter and started listening to them and, and using that. So I think, you know, I kept looking until I found what I needed, but also make sure that you're not, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you're doing it. And I'll add that if you can find resources that are actually um, help you to look at multiple things in your class throughout a semester, that can be really useful. For example, the we had a, uh, an earlier podcast, if you're interested in learning more with um, one of the directors of the Stanford History Education Group, and they've actually developed materials for how you analyze like primary documents and make sense of them. And once you bring those resources in that they have, like it works for anything. And so I think thinking about what's your approach gonna be to studying your topic during the year, and is could we come up with um, go find resources for attacking that all year long where our students get used to it. And then, so a lot of people that use the Shag materials, um, they this, they kind of help the students learn how to use them in the beginning of the year. And then they use them throughout the year and they work with everything. Hi, I'm Amanda. Uh, I'm hoping to get into English language arts at the high school level. And like people have said, I got into teaching because of all the English teachers that I had that profoundly influenced my life. My question is, how do you establish authority in the classroom without being scary or too strict, especially when you look about the age of your students and you're a lot smaller than most of them? <laughs> um, I'll just be honest about that, and this is terrible, but um, I actually lie to my students. It, and it's so funny now because they're adults and um, they've graduated from college and they still don't know that I was a first year teacher. That was one of the things that I told people coming in when I was hired in the middle of the year is that they can't know that I'm new. You know, I want them to think that I know what I'm doing. Um, but honestly, I think just really expressing to the students that you care about them um, and that this is a safe place, but that you're for them. So one of the things that I always battle with the middle school is well, why do we have to do this? What, what are the rules? And so we would actually go through the rules and talk about, well, why would this be a rule? You know, so what? Why does this matter? And when I would do that and the kids could reason through it, well, then then they kind of understood why we did what we did. There was, there was a method to the madness. It wasn't just me, you know, being an authoritarian figure, but there was actually um, reasons for having the structures. So for me, anyway, emphasizing care um, for the students, 
and, and, and establishing that relationship. At high school level, I don't know if they'll really balk you too much. I don't know. I guess the other people who've been high school teachers could speak to that more. One of the biggest transitions I made for teachers, even with my experience in student teaching, I had never been like the authoritative figure in a in any time in my life. You know, people had always told me what to do all my life. And I got in a classroom my first year. I was teaching juniors who were like 17 years old and I was like 23. And I didn't know how to look them in the eyes and be like, no, we're doing this right now. But I think the big, I have two pieces of advice. One piece of advice is I think if the students really know you care about them and you make it clear that, you know, your aim is for them to succeed, that you can, you know, tell them what to do. And it's not seen as like, you know, this person's just a jerk. It's that they care so much about me. They're going to keep me on task because they want to see me succeed and go to college. And I think, you know, different groups of students will respond differently to different types of teachers. I think it's also uh, a good idea to to watch other teachers and see how they do it and, and, and see, like, you know, which style could work for you. Uh, so when you're in your first, I mean, you're doing your student teaching uh, during your off periods, go sit in someone's class that you think is pretty good. Uh, when you're in your first year, go sit in other people's classes, not just people in your own department, but other departments, too, who kind of have a, you know, a good reputation. That's just a, a good way to kind of like model yourself. You're never going to be someone else. But you might end up being kind of like a composite of a number of different teachers. All right. Hi, my name is David, and I am currently pursuing social studies um, at the secondary level in high school. And uh, the subject I would want to teach ideally would be, uh, you know, civics or government or U.S. history. My experience has been, I guess, that kind of led me to teaching was I was an after-school counselor at a YMCA when I was in high school. I have a lot of um, experience working at Y camps over the summer, so that kind of initially led me to teaching. Um, and my question is, do you think the appointment of Betsy DeVos for the department, the secretary for the Department of Education will affect public schools immediately, um, if at all? Yeah, that's the first question is whether she'll be confirmed with it. If you've been kind of keeping up with things, it's a it's a really tight vote right now. So um, we will find out if Betsy DeVos is confirmed. But I'll say a couple things about just the Department of Education and what a secretary of education can do and how they can influence public schools um, really briefly. Um, and we do have, if you want to learn more about Betsy DeVos and discussions around school choice and what happened in Michigan, in episode 42, we had a, an education reporter come on and really shine a light on some of the things that happened as a result of school choice um, policies in Michigan. But I think one thing that's important to understand is um, education is primarily a state issue. You know, when the U.S. Constitution was written, education was not mentioned. And according to the Tenth Amendment, that means that it's an issue left up to the states. So in the end, the federal government does not have primary power over education. Now, where they've gotten a lot of power in recent years is that they actually often will say, well, we have all this money, and if you do what we want then we're going to give you the money. And so when you think of No Child Left Behind, for example, what it did is it tied money to um, that states would get to you know meeting these certain requirements and for the first time having high stakes tests associated with those. Um, of course, No Child Left Behind did not meet hardly any of the goals that it, it set out to, although some people would say it did help schools focus on um, the their different populations that maybe were getting ignored, whether it's special education students or African-American males, uh, because it required that in the testing data. But we already have a new law that's been passed called ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, 
And that law actually already diminished the role of the federal government. So when you think about what Betsy DeVos could do, her role coming in and whoever else would maybe take that role um, is already diminished a little bit because some of the power has been given back to the states to determine what types of assessments they're going to do. Now, the area where she could really affect things is primarily in probably trying to um, affect funding or potentially not um, as stringently enforce civil rights legislation or other things like that. But some things are pretty set in stone. And there was, I think, a few confusions in her confirmation hearing about IDEA. And I I don't think that she would be able to probably change that, even though she didn't um, seem to to understand that it's a federal law that you have to pretty much comply with. It's not a state issue in that case. And so the, the short answer is the Secretary of Education does not have as much power as a lot of people think. And if you're concerned or interested in, in what's happening in education policy, the first thing I would say is get involved in your state. Um, there's a lot to be done there to affect uh, what's happening. And I know during the DeVos hearings, a lot of teachers have made their voices heard about what they think is important to them. And they've, in many cases, flooded senators' offices um, with phone calls about it. And so I would encourage you to, to start following up on these policy issues and figuring out what you think is right. Uh, hey, I'm Sam. I want to be a high school social studies teacher. And I guess the reason I want to get into teaching and coaching is I like history, I like sports, and I like helping kids. So I feel like it's the perfect job. My question is, when did you feel like you became a good teacher? Or when do you feel like everything clicked? This is such a difficult question. Sometimes I feel like I'm a good teacher. Sometimes I feel like whatever I did just didn't work. And I need to figure out exactly what went wrong. And so I get kind of obsessed. Sometimes I have really great days. Sometimes I, I, I don't. And, and so then I, I just I reassess. It's a really tough question. I, I guess I just go through a lot of self-doubt. Uh, I, I look at some of the things and I just question, why did I do that? Why am I doing like this? Why can't I do it a little bit better? And I feel like you're always kind of critical of yourself and you're always looking for, for better ways. Yes. Um, I don't know if I've ever felt like I've arrived in teaching. You know, this is my 14th year um, going into my 14th year of teaching. And I don't know if I feel like I've arrived, but the research tells us is that around year three, between three and six, you get really comfortable. You know, you kind of understand who you are and and what you bring to the classroom and you kind of settle down into just into yourself. That's what the research says. But as far as thinking I've got it all together, I get humbled every single day. (laughs) Every single day I'm thinking "Hmm, I, I could do a little bit more work. So I think not necessarily that I'm a good teacher, um, but I'm, I'm a comfortable teacher, you know, and I'm comfortable in what I'm doing. I think it's probably more um, where I am, but there's always a way to improve, and I'm still working on it. You two are, are really are way too humble, because I know for a fact both of you are incredible teachers. If I could tell you the testimony that I've heard from people about Destiny's teaching, it's it's ridiculous. She changes kids' lives every day. But I think the thing is, is that you're both really reflective about your teaching, And while some parts of your teaching may click one year, there's always things to work on. So I think really good teachers not only um, continue to to improve, they they embrace their own strengths and they they teach to those, but they work on their shortcomings. They figure out what am I not good at and how can I improve it? And I'm sure as you guys answered this question, both of you thought about your like small shortcomings and didn't focus on your tremendous amount of amazing results you've already had in your career. Wouldn't it be great if you could just collect, collect so many things and then you'd like level up or you found the hero sword and you're a great teacher because you have the hero sword now. Yeah, it should be levels. Like I'm level six yes. teacher. <laughs> I'm a level six wizard. 
It's Stephanie again. UNC has prepared us really well and we all have these great placements and we're in schools every day. And yet I know that when we start in our own classrooms full time, there is gonna be something that takes us by surprise. So what is it that we are not prepared for and that it's the challenges that are gonna take us by surprise that no matter what we do to prepare, they're still out there. This is Chris. One of the things that my first year, I was just struck by the fact that students will tell you things that you are absolutely not prepared. Nobody tells you how to handle. Literally one of, I think this was in the first semester I was teaching, I had a student that came up to me between classes and said, I think my friend's having a miscarriage in the bathroom. And I was like, okay, um, let me go with you and try to figure out what the heck, yeah, what the heck to do, you know, um, and and, you know, and I, well, long story short, I basically was in there, are you okay? You know, we need to go talk to somebody, but I don't want anybody to know, like, this is one of those issues where I kind of have to tell somebody, you know, mandated reporter type of thing, like, this is a health situation. And so, you know, talked her down, you know, and got her to the office and kind of worked out. But, you know, there's not a methods class for that. I'm sorry. You know, there just isn't. They can't, you know, you can't prepare for every crazy thing that's going to happen, you know, and just like how to, I mean, you can get suggestions for how, you know, good strategies for how to talk to parents, but that's not going to prepare you for the crazy parent that is going to go off on you on the phone and start cursing you out or whatever. And that, you know, and this is like by far the minimum things. These are just like weird situations that come up. These are not like the things you have to deal with every day. These are the kinds of things that you don't really get prepared for and you just kind of have to work through. And hopefully you have, this is one of the reasons that I think Destiny spoke earlier to having, making connections within your building with your coworkers. So you have a support network with your fellow teachers to get you through difficult situations like that. My department was awesome. And so they talked me off the ledge, like almost literally so many times, just where I was like, I can't do this. I, what have I gotten myself into? What the heck is going on? You know, and they really, really helped me. So I think that there's just a lot of things you have, you know, keeping your emotional health, you know, prioritizing some downtime for yourself, making those um, relationships with your colleagues and just, you know, being open to the unexpected because it's going to happen. I didn't realize how lonely teaching could be. There are some times when you don't see anyone except for your students for like weeks upon time where you don't see a colleague or, or talk to anyone or you don't see daylight because you spend your entire night grading or, or lesson planning. And so I wasn't, I used to work for a city year, which is a, an AmeriCorps program. And I was a training manager and I was a service manager. And I, and I had a lot of meetings with a lot of people and I was always around people. And it was really nice, like tight community. I shared an office with one of my best friends and then going to teaching, which is what I did right after it was just, it was different. Uh, it was really different. And so I felt a bit lost at points and I never thought that I would feel that way. I never thought that like, this was something that you could, could be a really isolating thing. So I tried to like, you know, I reach out to colleagues. I started a movable feast where like one Friday a month, a different department would host lunch because sometimes we didn't eat lunch. Like we had pe- people eat lunch in their own rooms a lot of times. And so I tried to start this movable feast where different departments would host uh, lunch and they would just host dessert. They, they'd, they'd bring dessert and everyone would go and eat there. Um, and I reached out. I, I This is where I became active on, on Twitter, uh, reaching out to other social studies teachers. I really needed that sense of community. I needed it. I really do. I needed to, I needed to thrive. I needed to survive. And I just didn't get that. Um, 
sometimes. Yeah, I would just say um, one thing. I, I kind of did some research, you know, um, for for um, teachers who've come in in a non-traditional path and. And um, a sweet teacher told me, she goes, what I wasn't prepared for is that I was older coming in and people didn't recognize that I was a new teacher because I didn't look like the typical new teacher. And I hadn't thought of that, but, but thinking about that, I don't know if I would necessarily clue into a person who's coming from industry and maybe older, recognizing and remembering that they're new. Um, and so in that regard, I would just suggest that if that does happen to you, to reach out but just to reach out to people. So I, I hadn't really thought that would be a concern, but that, but that it could be. So if you're coming in um, from, a, from a different situation or if you are an older teacher um, coming in as a new teacher, people may not recognize that. So just reminding people like, hey, I'm, I may look like I've been here for a while, but I really haven't, you know? So, so really just kind of seeking um, out relationships with your colleagues. Um, I'll say for, for me, um, my mentor teacher was just absolutely excellent and she saved me. She was my cover. So she allowed me through her um, status in the school that I could do a lot of things because she vouched for me. So um, most definitely seek those relationships. Hi, my name is JC and next year I hope to teach English at the high school level, more specifically um, American literature or British literature. Both of those really captivate my interest. Um, I really wanna teach because I love building relationships and I really think that I can make a difference in a lot of people's lives. But my question for you is, what is the biggest mistake you made your first year and how did you fix it? I think it gets back to the relationship that you have with your students. And like Dan had talked about, really taking that time at the beginning of the year to kind of front load some of those relationship and community building activities. Okay, picture it. I'm going to go all Sophia from Golden Girls here. Picture it. Classroom, ninth graders, early in the day. I'm sh we're talking about the civil rights movement. I'm showing a clip from Eyes on the Prize. And I knew there was a curse word in it, a bad one. And I was like, I'm going to be all on top of this and pause it or mute it. It totally missed it. It was like Ralphie in A Christmas Story. You know, that sense of like heat that goes through your body. So I paused the video and I just apologized profusely. And the really cool thing was these were ninth graders. And they said, you know what, Miss Wall, that really showed us how frustrated the civil rights workers were because they had been through so much. They had been working for so long. People were still just running them down. It didn't matter how peaceful they were being. And he just lost his mind. And I said, yeah, that's really true. And you can incur some, I think like, again, it goes back to that building of relationships that you can you really get a lot out of doing that and you get like some forgiveness from your students. And I think when you open yourself up and you show openness to them making mistakes and that it's a whole class thing, it's not just them and you correcting them, that everybody can do that, that we're all learners in the environment, that that goes a long way. You also don't realize how many bad words are in Forrest Gump until you show it to kids in school. Word. Like everything just like, you're like, oh, I don't remember that scene. What, he said that? Anyway, we did a Forrest Gump project, and a mistake I made is I off, when I went my first year, I was so focused on my own teaching, I didn't think about that I was in any, entering a culture with other teachers and how important it was for them, for them for me to really seek out their wisdom and advice. And so I would just remind you, regardless, everyone at a school probably has a little to teach you, so go ask them questions about their teaching and their advice, and I think everyone really appreciates that, and that'll endear you to your, your school community. And bring brownies every now and then.
People really like brownies. People do like brownies. <laughs> Great. Thank you guys so much. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us this evening. And we really appreciated you guys joining us, though. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really enjoyed talking with the class today. Chris and Destiny, how can people get in touch with you if they want to continue to learn from all your sage advice? Hey, I'm on Twitter, Miss Destiny Warrior. Um, and they can find me there. I'm at chitch94 on Twitter. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. So if you're doing something creative in your classroom, go ahead and shoot us a line. We're on Twitter at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. Tweet us a line there and we can chat. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or why not all three? And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air, even if you are Michael's former student teacher. That was the nicest five-star review. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, go listen to it. Michael is well-liked. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Thank you.